1: Hello and welcome to The Hedgehog and the Fox, the podcast that's curious about curiously good books. To start 2021, an interview about one of my favourite non-fiction books of last year, The Next Great Migration, by Sonia Shah. Sonia's a science journalist and prize-winning author, and her latest book was selected as a Best Non-Fiction Book of 2020 by Publishers Weekly, and a Best Science Book of the Year by Amazon amongst others. Naomi Klein called it dazzlingly original. It's dazzling because it challenges so many myths and preconceptions about migration. From childhood, Sonia says, we're taught that plants, animals and people belong in certain places. A powerful result of this, she suggests, is a dominant view of migration as unnatural, a threat. And migrants as vectors of chaos and disorder. A long-dominant Christian worldview in the West reinforced the idea of an unchanging, orderly world, of everything in its rightful place. Yet the body of scientific and historical evidence keeps growing, of Homo sapiens, as a species that moves, migrates, pushes into new territory. When other species migrate, they're constrained mainly by their own biology, and their ability to thrive in a new environment. When human beings want to migrate, there are also political and economic impediments. And often lawmakers have made use of the most discredited pseudoscience to justify their political decisions. Sonya's fascinating in her exploration of how scientists, such as 18th century Swedish naturalist Carl Linnaeus, tried to impose strict demarcation lines between different peoples akin to those he drew between the species and the rest of the natural world. In time, the ramifications went far beyond the scientific community. Once races are categorised, they can be ranked. Notions of degeneration, of superior and inferior, gain traction. Ideals of a shared humanity are supplanted by thoughts of us and them. Racial segregation and colonial conquest reach for scientific legitimation. The United States can go from being a nation that opens its arms to huddled masses of immigrants to one that chants, Build the Wall. I spoke to Sonia last August and began with her acknowledgement that she too has internalised myths about migration as a disruptive force, despite her own family's migratory past. Her grandparents moved from fishing villages in Gujarat to industrialising Mumbai, and her parents took their medical degrees from there to the U.S. Her own feeling of somehow being out of place was, she came to realize, at the root of her quest to better understand migration.
0: I hadn't realized to what extent I had sort of incorporated this idea of migration as anomalous and disruptive and exceptional, into my own life, not only my work, which has been very much about the disruptions caused by people, microbes, animals, all moving in new ways and colliding in new ways, but also in my own identity. So I, I hadn't really understood the degree to which I had incorporated that idea of migration as disruptive and exceptional and sort of anomalous, um, as sort of marginal into my own identity you know, I kind of accepted that idea that my body in place, you know, this body of sort of South Asian origin, and yet in place on the North American continent was somehow, you know, weird, strange, not normal, Um, something that needed to be explained, something that made it so that I was not like a quote, unquote, real American. And I, you know, I I never called myself just a regular American. I... Always called myself some kind of version of an American, whether it was Asian American or South Asian American or Indian American, you know, something that's not quite the same as a real American, because I didn't feel entitled to that moniker. I didn't feel that it was my right. It felt presumptuous to say I'm American the same as everyone else's, because I did think that that act of long-distance migration that my parents undertook made me out of place.
1: And you talk about how not just your sort of personal life but your professional life was also bound up with pursuing the idea of migration as a disruptive force. You talk about, you know, writing about the damage done by Biota on the move.
0: Absolutely. I mean, you, one way to think about contagious diseases, which I've been writing about for many years now, um, about malaria and about pandemics, et cetera, is that they are the result of the disruptions that occur when microbes, animals, and people collide in new ways because they're moving in new ways. And so, in fact, the the, the reporting that led me to this book was in Greece. And I went there because, you know, people are crossing the Mediterranean and it was this whole tumult around the quote-unquote migrant crisis there. And I went because I, I got a grant from the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting to report on the public health hazard that that migrant flow might cause. So the very beginning of these of this book, I was in a completely different place than I was at the end of it.
1: I wondered, I mean, that was going to be my next question. To what extent did you set out to challenge a prevailing view and to what extent were you discovering the degree to which it was open to challenge as you went along? You know, how much of a a process of discovery, in fact, was it for you?
0: It was absolutely a a process of discovery because I I went to Greece with the idea that all these people, you know, and it seemed kind of logical, like there's people leaving Syria and Afghanistan and, and other parts of Africa. They were leaving collapsed societies where they wouldn't have necessarily been vaccinated, um, that they would have been exposed to sort of novel pathogens. And they were moving into places where the disease environment was very different and it's, and they'd be under stress. So it seemed to me that given those sort of fundamentals, that there would be outbreaks of disease and they would introduce new pathogens into, into European societies. And that that would be an issue that would need to be managed. And yet when I went there, you know, I, I remember sitting down with someone from Doctors Without Borders, and and he had been working with these, you know, people on the move who had been trapped in the refugee camps and detention centers across Greece. And I said something like, "This must be one of the implications of the migrant crisis." You know, I use that term, migrant crisis, and and he said, "There is no migrant crisis," and you know, it just stopped me in my tracks entirely. And I was like, well, there's people stuck in camps and there's all this tumult and people are drowning in the sea. And, you know, there's like protests in the streets and all these populace are coming into power to close the borders. And well, what is that? You know, and, and he was like, well, it's there's no crisis of migration. The crisis isn't because people are moving. There's plenty of capacity to absorb them. There's plenty of housing. There's plenty of jobs but the crisis is happening because of a crisis of welcome, you know, that it's a crisis of reception. And that sort of was the spark that really made me rethink some of the presumptions I had brought to the story to begin with.
1: And I think the reader has the same experience in reading the book that so many pre myths are really quite effectively demolished as you go and as you as you delve deeper into you know deeper into um some of the you know things which are really accepted as fact. And going all the way back, because you you, you go back and you trace the origin of some of the, the ideas that that still are held by a lot of people and one of the things your book did was make me revise my rather superficial view of Linnaeus, the, the Swedish scientist, taxonomist 18th century. And I'd thought of him really, probably to the extent that I'd thought of him at all, as one of the good guys in, in the history of you know, history of, of science and understanding. And it seems like he's got quite a significant role in setting the ball rolling when it comes to misperceptions about race and migration and species.
0: Yeah, we don't really talk about his human taxonomy very much because we've really just incorporated it into almost everything we do. We kind of celebrate Linnaeus as the father of modern taxonomy. He created the classification system that are, is still used to classify and name plants and animals and all the, all the different species. But he also came up with a human taxonomy in which he decided that People belonged in different places wherever they were from. So people in Africa belonged there and they were actually a separate subspecies, biologically distinct from people who lived in Asia, who were biologically distinct from the people who lived in Europe and the the Americas. And so he kind of created these taxonomic borders between us, kind of color coded us by continent The red Americans, the black Africans, the yellow Asians and the white Europeans, which in the end, when I started looking at it was based on a lot of faulty science and and gossip and legend and folklore. And yet it has become sort of our central idea about human biodiversity in the sense that we continue to talk about race, you know, as if it's something real, as if there's some sort of biological basis for it rather than just an absolutely arbitrary way to divide up what is in fact a continuum of human diversity.
1: I mean, you mentioned borders there and taking a step back and thinking about the big picture that you're describing, it seemed to me that the policing of man-made borders was really intrinsic to this whole story that the border between the human species and animals and the border between you know, mainly Western white people and the races that they defined and distinguished themselves against. There was that, that seemed to me sort of fundamental to what had been going on in the last couple of centuries.
0: I think so. I mean, I think, you know, and there was an interesting tension at the beginning of all this between Linnaeus and other, like French naturalists and other leading thinkers at that time who were saying, look, y- you can't just split humans up into pieces, we're actually all of one, you know, a one continuous range of individuals that sort of shade from one to the other. And in fact, even our distinctions between us and other what we now understand as other species is also continuous, that all of life is just one sort of continuous Fabric, one shading into the other, sort of imperceptibly, and so the way we think, we can think about it that way as uh, just a continuum, and that's what you know. A lot of naturalists were were thinking at the time it was like maybe that's the way to think of about nature, about God's creation, because of course this was all sort of a, a religious project, also. But Linnaeus was very much a splitter, so when faced with this messy data about all these different people. They look very different. They, all these different animals, they all look very different. They act different. They behave differently. The way he wanted to categorize that, the way he wanted to understand that is by splitting them. So, okay, these people are like this and these people are like that. And there's always an artificiality to that, you know, and those became sort of inconvenient facts.
1: And I mean, I guess you can, it's not not too hard to see the sort of self-interest behind that kind of justification for one's own group at the top of the the hierarchy but what i what I was surprised i mean obviously that doesn't justify but it's sort of you can see where why that they they would want to uh, in a time of sort of growing expansionism I was also struck though by the fact that naturalists were very slow to Observe and take stock of animal migration it seemed it seemed to be a long time before they were able to actually write about that and observe that in a way that would pass scientific muster today Why, why do you think it took so long to observe what after all was was patently going on
0: yeah that I was very struck by that too, doing the reporting for this book because now of course it's it seems like obviously why that's so central to species like migratory birds. Like, why wouldn't you understand that sort of instinctively? But of course it was hard to see, right? I mean, what you would actually observe is creatures that appear at one moment in your one place and then just disappear and then maybe reappear again. And so there's other ways to explain that Linnaeus thought that some of these bird species disappeared not because they moved anywhere, but because they hid in the bottom of lakes, for example, or in caves. So he just thought he couldn't see them anymore because they were hiding, not because they actually left and went anywhere. But that kind of underestimation about animal movement really continued for so long, you know, right up until. World War II when all the radars started, you know, logging signals from migrating birds and insects and and the military officials were like, oh, well, those must be ghosts because it can't possibly be birds flying at night over the sea. They just thought that that was like impossible that birds could do that.
1: Yeah, I was astonished that the misunderstanding, sometimes, sometimes I guess willful misunderstanding, but persisted in, as you say, into the 20th century so that the lemming could be taken up, misrepresented, and used as a metaphor that would then be applied to, to human migration. I had no idea about that story. Maybe maybe I could get you to explain a little bit about how the lemming comes into your um, narrative.
0: So this story, I, I love this story, because I had learned about the suicidal migration of the lemmings when I was a kid, you know, in grade school. And so the idea, and they taught us, I think they taught us this in geography class that lemmings were these little, you know, Arctic rodents and, at some point in their life cycle, they all got together and ran at speed and flung themselves off the top of cliffs into the Arctic Sea where they all perished. And the idea was that this was a form of sort of population control that they recognized that their numbers were getting too big. And so they kind of sacrificed themselves. And of course, this makes no sense in terms of what we understand about evolution. But, you know, when I trace this story back, it it turns out it was first promoted by Charles Elton, who is now considered the father of modern ecology. And he was up in the Arctic and he saw, you know, he, he collected some information from local people there about these myths and legends about lemmings, because, you know, for them, you know, the, the lemmings would suddenly appear in the spring. There'd be a lot of them and, you know, out of nowhere, seemingly. And then they'd see kind of footprints around and the, and, you know, maybe a few carcasses here and there in the water. And, and they had to kind of explain these disparate facts. Like, where did they all come from? You know, wh- and then suddenly they disappear again. Where did they all go? So they had lots of legends and folklore about lemmings. Um, this is up in Norway and Sweden up in there and, you know, some of them were like, Oh, well, lemmings are, you know, they, they're born on mountains in the heavens and then they're, they pour down in the rain. Like there's all these crazy things, but Charles Elton was, uh, you know, an Englishman. And so he went, he went, he collected this information, not in his own language. And he did very crude translations of some of their original material and kind of took it as fact that lemmings mysteriously appeared and then, you know, ran. In mass towards the sea and flung themselves into the ocean and died. And it made sense to him because he was enamored of this idea of species kind of sacrificing themselves for the greater good. And embedded in that was this idea about migration. What is the proper endpoint of migration? And he didn't see any ecological role for migration in nature. What he's remembered for today is his theory about niches, that every species has a very specific niche, a a habitat, a diet, a climate that is really specialized and they evolve and they adapt to it and they become very specialized to it. And then you have lots of those creatures with their niches in one ecosystem and it creates a kind of balance that's very stable and still. And that was his whole idea about nature. So for him, like, you know, migration was just a disruptive act. It had no ecological role. And so the idea that the lemmings migrated to in order to kill themselves. That made sense to him because there would be no role for migrants sort of entering into another niche. It would obviously be disruptive, right? So, so the only way this could exist in nature if migration ended in mass suicide. And so he wrote papers about this and they were incorporated into, you know, theories about ecosystems and niches and population dynamics for many years. And then, of course, as you say, became a very potent metaphor that people use to describe all kinds of kind of, you know, self-destructive behavior. But what I draw from it is also this other aspect is that what does this tell us about migrants, you know, and migration and the role of migration in nature?
1: It's a dynamic that we keep seeing in the story you're telling, where an idea that might have been born in a scientific paper then sort of escapes into the the cultural ecosystem and becomes a very ingrained popular myth i mean i think you i, I liked your your comparison to a puffball mushroom that it you know it struck and then it sort of scatters all this this dust and in this case these the dust is is the myths and the falsehoods and the the half truths and the exaggerations and the distortions
0: yeah i mean cuz meanwhile of course science moves on Right. So, so scientists quickly learned, you know, in the fifties and sixties and seventies that lemmings don't migrate to their death. They actually are, you know, hiding under the snow and are reproducing. And then they come, you know, and then the snows melt. And so it, it brings water into their tunnels. And, and it seems as if they've come out of nowhere. But in fact, they've just been living their lives under the snow. We just couldn't see them. The whole idea that they had been sacrificing themselves in mass suicide was absolutely manufactured. And scientists under, started to understand that. I mean, there was a bunch of scientists who were associated with Charles Elton who kept searching for the lemmings and ev- for evidence of these suicidal migrations, and they never could find them. You know, they they would go up to the Arctic and they would find, oh, just you know, like old turds from lemmings and they couldn't find any lemmings. They never got any photographs. They never got any video, you know, so it became this sort of unsolved mystery until finally they realized, no, wait a second, let's look under the snow. There they all are, you know.
1: (laughs) Switching back to humans from lemmings, Sonia, when would you say the United States began to to pivot from being a nation of immigrants to one that wanted to pull up the drawbridge and come out with this message of America must be kept American and begin to reinforce the demarcation between those who belonged and those who were deemed not to belong? When does that, when does that pivot sort of begin to become visible?
0: I trace it back to the 1920s as a first sort of real expression of this idea that foreigners are biologically hazardous and, and we shouldn't have them coming in. And this, of course, was, you know, in a period of mass migration that we had A lot of people from millions of people from Europe, from Asia, from Central America coming into the United States, and the borders were basically open, you know, especially between Europe and the United States in the late 19th century, people could just come. There was no system of saying, well, you're allowed and you're not, you know, only in the very, very most skeletal sense did we do any kind of screening. And it was really scientists who led the charge to say, look, this is a biological hazard, because these people are biologically distinct from us. And if we allow them to come here and reproduce with us, we will start to degenerate. And there's this whole, you know, body of science that they created that supported this conjecture. Um, And they had conferences, and they made papers, and they gave talks, and they actually ended up drafting what would become the our nineteen twenties racial quota immigration laws in this country that then held sway right up until the mid-1960s when they were taken apart because of, you know, the civil rights movement.
1: And at the same time, the the pseudoscience of eugenics, I was quite shocked to to read that it was being taught in lots of the United States top universities in the in the years after the First World War.
0: I mean that was what early you know, what the science of heredity was at that time. So scientists were promoting the latest findings and they called it eugenics then as a positive thing, you know. But and today it has, it's, it sort of sounds like a dirty word, but it, in fact, it was just mainstream science. It was mainstream scientific understanding about heredity and what you should do about it. You know, that you should try to uh, make sure that people with the best traits that you wanted to promote were the ones who reproduced more than the ones with traits that you didn't like. In and of itself, it's not a crazy idea. The craziness comes from how do they qualify those traits? They said, okay, if there's somebody who's intelligent, that person should have more children because they'll pass that on. And in fact, what we now know is all of these complex behaviors that we like in people, we like them musical capacity or intelligence or good morals or whatever, all of those things, they're not encoded in our genes. They are expressed socially and culturally and economically. So their underlying idea that, yes, if you have good traits, you should pass them on and you should have more kids rather than if you have bad traits or asocial traits, you should have fewer. That doesn't seem as problematic to me that what's problematic is their absolutely reductionist way of looking at where do these complex behaviors come from. And they thought they had a very, very simplistic understanding of that. So they thought if one person, if this person is intelligent, that is encoded in, in their genes, and that that would be passed down to the next generation unchanged, like a stone moving through a gullet is one of the metaphors I use that you just with no influence of, you know, that society, that economics, that demographics, that education, none of that played any role at all. Um, So they really overdetermined what biological inheritance was about.
1: Yeah. So there's, there's some really tendentious instrumentalization of data on the part of those early 20th century scientists, isn't there? You know, to the extent that an intelligence test can be constructed around what would constitute the cultural knowledge of an educated middle-class white American? And if some, if an imi- if a poor immigrant, you know, hasn't had access to that cultural knowledge, then they're classified as a, as a moron. I think was the category they used.
0: Yes, moron, uh, idiots. Yeah, these were all sort of technical terms for people who didn't know you know, the jingles for popular advertisements or the names of uh, sports figures. I mean, all this very, very specific, what we understand now is very specific cultural knowledge that is, it's specific to certain demographic groups. They thought that was just a function of intelligence, you know, sort of writ large. And if you didn't know that stuff, that must mean that you were backward or you had bad genes.
1: Now, one of the most dispiriting things which you say in the book, and of course we all we all know it because we watch the news and we 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 live in the world, but you say you expected to have to dig deep in order to unearth evidence of anti-immigrant science and in inverted commas in today's politics. And then of course it turned out that you didn't have to dig very deep at all because it's very visible every time you turn on the news or, or look at Twitter because of the way that politics has shifted in the last few years with the the rise of Trump.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of this quote unquote science, which we now understand is like extremely flawed in the early 20th century was incorporated into some of our social movements that remained kind of underground for a long time, but which have had periods of resurgence. And I Think we're seeing that now. And so we have political leaders like the president, but also members of Congress here in the United States who say things like, well, I've got good genes. You know, I've got the best genes, as if that explains complex behaviors that are shaped by all these other larger social forces. And saying things like, well, we can't, you know, we can't further our society if, if, uh, you know, all these other people's babies are part of it. You know, this idea that whatever capacities you have that you can express today are passed down unchanged to the next generation, which is scientifically just a very backward idea. And yet it still persists. and, And it's really hardly even challenged. You know, people kind of have a sense of like, well, it's not really like that, but it's not really specifically challenged. You know, and I think a lot of people want easy answers for why are some people... The way they are, you know, and we want to sort of sort of say, well, it must be this gene or that gene. You know, we, we still do that all the time. It's like, oh, there's a gene for migration, a single gene, you know, oh, there's a gene for, you know, eye color. Oh, there's a gene for height. Oh, there's a gene for people who want to be this way or that way. Um, I think there's a real thirst for that still. Um, and that to me is just testament to the fact that we are not. Aware of where the science really is—that you know, genes have been long understood as being not that simple and being manifested through a process that is shaped by the environment.
1: Now, your book toppled lots of myths in a really healthy, salutary way. But one thing which I th- which I think I'm correct in saying you're not challenging, is this. Fact that psychology experiments show that if you put people in two teams and you give them different colored T-shirts, you know, so there's a red team and a blue team, people will identify with their own team and they will display suspicion, hostility, whatever towards the other team. And you describe that as lodged deep in our psyches. Is that the nub of this whole thing? Is that the sort of irreducible problem that we we still haven't found a way to? get beyond any more than they had in the early 20th century.
0: Yeah, I think in part. I mean, there is definitely a tension there because tribalism in group preference, I think those are very powerful parts of our behaviors. You know, they were important in certain in certain places, in certain times. Um, And one of the most potent ways in which those behaviors might have been really useful to us is in managing pathogens. You know, there's no real reason to favor the people around you more than some stranger. We have all these reasons for it now, right? Oh, they might take our jobs, or they might be criminals, or they might, you know, make us insecure, or they might bring cultural practices that we don't like. You know, we have all these reasons for it now, but most of those are exaggerated. But there is one thing that in the past that people from far away could bring to us that would really endanger us and that is novel pathogens. And so, you know, I think there would have been a very strong selective pressure um, for people to become more, you know, to become distrustful of the stranger to favor their own group compared to of others who are far, who are not from that place. Um, so I think there is like a basis for that. It's just, how do we characterize that now, now that we know that, we are all of one peoples, right? Like we have shared so many of our genes and we're always sort of moving into new places and differentiating a little bit and then mixing again, right? So we have this sort of continuous process of coming apart And becoming more diverse because of that, as we adapt to new places and new diets and new climates and new geographies, and then coming together again, you know, and you can see that in our genetics, that it's our bodies are encoded to do that. So I think there is that tension there. And it's been Part of our strength that we, you know, it allows us to differentiate, which we need to do. Otherwise we would be just one homogenous, everyone be the same eventually, right? We're not. We, we have, we maintain diversity because we still have differentiation. So you need to have that tension to maintain diversity over time. And so I think. Yeah, you're right. Like, we're we're still grappling with that. The question is today, like, in our modern era, first of all, where do we draw those borders, right? Like, who is in the in-group and who is in the out-group? I think that is very... Up for grabs, right? Like we, we like to say, well, everyone in my up, up, my in group are, you know, my racial group or my ethnic group or my cultural group. Well, how do we define that? We're all so mixed up now that it's when you start to really drill down, those edges are incredibly fuzzy. So it's just very arbitrary where we draw those lines. Um, so that's one thing to question. And then the other thing to question is what value is it for us now? Now that we do have modern medicine, now that we do share almost all of our pathogens. As we are seeing right now, what a what a great example we're living through right now with this pandemic tearing through human populations across the entire globe.
1: One of the things I wrote down as I was reading your book, trying to encapsulate one of the, what I took to be the core ideas, was "all costs, no benefits" as being an idea that you want to overturn because that seems mm, to have been mm. a prevalent idea that that migrants only bring costs and don't bring benefits, and it seemed to me that. That was something which was, was difficult to overturn, but really needed to be overturned.
0: Yeah, I think it's just sort of a, a myopic view. So we have erased a lot of migration, you know, from our past and in our present that we just don't see. So, you know, we don't see the migration in ancient times, which, you know, scientists are now kind of painting for us and bringing that history back for us. But even today in our own moment, we... There's so much mobility that happens that we just don't even notice. We don't even think about it. We we notice this one little flow of asylum seekers moving across the Mediterranean Sea because it captures our at- attention. It's very conspicuous and, and all the headlines are about it, right? But there's all this other mobility going on that we just don't even think about. It's blood running through our veins. We're absolutely unaware of it. And I was very struck at the beginning of this pandemic that you know, by the time the city of Wuhan kind of shut its borders and shut down, um, and then all these other policymakers around the world said, OK, we're going to save our communities. We're going to close our borders to people from Wuhan. OK, done, done, right? We we solved that problem. Well, it turns out 7 million people had already left the city of Wuhan before the city shut down, and thousands of people already were carrying the virus in Europe and pouring into North America and into South America nobody was even noticing because we just so underestimate the scale of our mobility even today. So, you know, this whole hubbub about climate displacement, right? This idea that there's all these people who are going to have to move because, you know, they live in places that are low lying and there's, you know, rising season and desertification. And that's true. Like all of that movement is going to have to happen, but how does that compare to all the movement that's already happening? it's probably just a tiny fraction. It's probably something we can absolutely absorb if we just let it happen. You know, we have this myopic view of how much migration is happening. And then when we look at the migration, the, the little tiny slice of it that, that we do focus on, we only look at the negatives. We only notice the disruptive aspects of it. So it's sort of both of those things together, I think.
1: Let me ask you finally, Sonia, you you met a lot of migrants in the course of um, reporting on this book. And you say that you would generally ask them why, why were they migrating? And then over time, you realized that was really wasn't the question that wasn't the the question to be asking. Can you just say in conclusion, why you realized, you know, that wasn't the right question that missed an essential point about what, what you'd been engaged on?
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I remember sitting with some Haitian migrants who had reached Canada in Montreal. And some of them had left Haiti, got into South America, and then walked through, you know, nine countries, through the jungles of the Darien Gap, crossed dozens of borders, and had just incredibly difficult journeys. And, you know, I'd ask them what, you know, what made you leave? And they would just Look at me blankly. Oh, well, and they would say things like, oh, well, someone was beating me up. Oh, well, you know, they'd point to sort of one thing. My mother was threatened by this gang or whatever. And it was so anticlimactic because, of course, to do these huge journeys, it's it's so complex. It's so, you know, so much bigger than one reason could never be enough to make someone do something so absorbing and, and that t- takes up all of your time for years to do it. You know, it's, it's never one reason. And then I started wondering, well, why do I want one reason? Whose behavior needs to be explained? Right. Like it gets back to that. It's like, what are the norms you're bringing with you when you ask people these questions you know what i'm saying is that it's weird to me that you moved so explain yourself please and give me one reason and that just started to seem incredibly unfair it's like not giving justice at all to the complexity of what they had done and then i started wondering well you know if you look at the whole history of migration as a species from our beginning you know, as we're putting this story together, like how much we've really moved all along. Maybe the thing that needs to be explained is why people stay still. We don't do that. We, we, the person who moves, we say, explain yourself, but maybe it should be just the opposite.
1: I was talking to Sonia Shah about her book, The Next Great Migration. It's available in print, ebook, and audiobook formats. Reading about pandemics may not be the way you want to start the year. But Sonia is also the author of a fine 2017 book entitled Pandemic, which takes the long view of humanity's coexistence with deadly infectious diseases. On the Hedgehog and Fox website, you'll find links to over 70 more episodes of the programme. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and catch up on any interviews you've missed. I'll be back again soon with another programme. So until then, thank you very much for listening and goodbye.